Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. The list of people running to replace U.S. Representative David Cicilline in Congress is getting longer every day. Who's likely to win and what will this race look like? Here to give us some perspective, our Brown University political science professor, Wendy Schiller, and Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS. We'll talk after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Wendy Schiller, a professor of political science at Brown University, and Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS. Wendy, Jim, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ed. So let's begin by setting the scene. Wendy, can you just recap why Rhode Island is holding a special election in the first congressional district this year, and how surprising is it? Well, uh, our incumbent, David Cicilline, resigned from office effective June 1st, 2023. And when that happens, I think folks should understand that the Constitution itself leaves the time, manner, and place of elections to the states. So the state of Rhode Island determines when this seat will be filled. Other states do not do this. They appoint somebody, and then they have the election at the regularly scheduled time, which would be 2024. But we're a small state. We can pull it off. So we are now uh, now just learned from the Secretary of state when the primary will be after Labor Day, uh, and then the general election will be on November 7th, 2023. And so these are dates that most voters are used to, but just not in an off year. Yeah, the governor just set the primary for September 5th and the general election for November 7th. Jim, House Speaker Joe Shikarchi and former gubernatorial candidate Helena Bonanno folks could have jumped in to the race with millions of dollars, high rate name recognition. Could they have cleared the field, do you think? Yes. And I heard competing voices were in Joe Sakarchi's ear. Uh, you know, he's talked to Jack Reed, he's talked to others. And I think some just said, is this really the job you want when you have what's arguably the most important and powerful job in Rhode Island right now? Helena, folks, I don't see sitting as number 435 in Congress. 
She may have another run in her as governor or maybe if a Senate seat came up. I think it was a strategic move for both of them not to do it. And as a result, it's no surprise in the last couple of weeks, every day, I mean, the Globe has the running list. So make sure you go to that Globe page often because you have to refresh it almost every day. And everybody's jumping in now, right? I mean, I think we're the only three people not running in CD1. Can I tell you, there's a lot of people I've never even heard of before. And so when you think, what do you have to do to get name recognition? This The declaration period is not going to be until what? Summer's beginning. Who's paying attention to anything in the summer? That's one of the reasons why I think it's a good thing that the primary was scheduled after Labor Day because, you know, Rhode Island is the, the state with beautiful beaches and people try to take vacation before school starts. So that would have been a very low turnout. Let's not forget, we have to do this again in a year. So this is the other thing about the sort of big names jumping in. You have to defend this seat in less than a year. You don't just get a free pass. There has to be a nomination to run for the general election in 24. So you're running, and then you're running again in a year. And I, I think that some people felt, well, if somebody doesn't do well, like Sabina Matos, lieutenant governor, is running, if she gets elected and she makes an impression, she'll be a strong front runner. However, if she doesn't, then she's weak, and then maybe uh, the other candidates who sat this one out can just jump in. Should Cicilline have left earlier and not strung it out until June 1st so we can get this process going. If he's really leaving, just get out of there. I don't think that Cicilline should have resigned earlier, and this is why. Um, David Cicilline has a very strong relationship with the Biden administration. He's been very uh, successful in securing grants and funding for the state of Rhode Island, and that process is ongoing. So I think he's still exercising influence, which is why I don't think it's a bad thing he didn't quit earlier. So here's a list of those who have already announced that they are running. Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos, Senator Sandra Cano, Representative Nathan Baia, Providence City Council Member John Gonsalves, former state Senate candidate Nick Audiello, former Secretary of State candidate Stephanie Butte, former U.S. House candidate and former Republican Alan Waters, and former RIPTA bus driver Makeda Barnes. Wendy, who do you see as the frontrunner among that group and why? I think Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos is the front runner. I think she's run a number of different elections. I think she had a very strong showing in the general election. And I think she has the ability to make the most of her connections on a retail politics level, particularly in the Latinx community, particularly with small business owners. She has delivered votes in areas of Providence that the other candidates may not be as strong in. And she has statewide recognition. You know, uh, Dan McKee gave Sabina Matos a lot of FaceTime. And I think that matters. I think people recognize the face and now they're going to have to recognize the name. So I think she, out of the gate, she starts, I think, as the front runner in terms of just pure name recognition. Jim, you had some breaking news about another potential candidate on a lively experiment on Friday. Tell us about that. Yeah, Arlene Violet, who uh, has not held office since the 80s, but certainly is well known. And she said she's seriously considering it. And it was funny, we were sitting in the green room beforehand, just kind of talking generally about the list that you talked about. And I kind of offhandedly said, who'd ever want this job in Congress? And she, <laughs> I'm thinking about that now because she just, she didn't say anything until she got out on the set. Look, Arlene ran as a Republican years ago. The Republican Party that she knows has left her. And I think she said if she runs, she would run as an independent. I think if you hear her positions, she leans more to the Democrats. And then the question is, I mean, this is a long if, would, who would she caucus with and all of that? But it's an intriguing setup because if she does run as an independent, it automatically puts her on the ballot no matter who clears the primary Wendy, I recently wrote about how former state representative Aaron Regenberg just stepped down from his 
U.S. District Court clerkship to consider a run for CD1. And he filed a statement of candidacy over the weekend. He still says he hasn't made a final decision, all evidence to the contrary. But would he be a serious contender? The thing that might hurt Aaron Regenberg is that he's not a woman, even though he's progressive. I think there's a sort of a hunger in Rhode Island, among women in particular, for a woman to represent the state. Given the sort of national mobilization of women across the country in the last 18 months, particularly after the Dobbs decision on abortion, that is still a very prominent issue. And women are still feeling under siege. And it's been a very long time, at least 30 years, since Rhode Island had Claudine Schneider in a congressional seat. And I think that's going to be momentum for women in the, in the race. And I think it's an obstacle for some of the men, particularly men who are me- not men of color. What about Arlene? Well, Arlene counts, right? I mean, she's, she's a woman. No, and- but what do you think about her p- considering it and potentially running? I think there's also a dynamic where a woman of color can make an argument that she will be the strongest representative for the diversity of the state of Rhode Island. We have a very diverse state population, and the CD1 is very diverse. And when you say, okay, I'm a woman of color, I can represent everybody, uh, and I am descriptively important for people who don't feel like they're represented right now in our all-white male delegation, that's a very key thing. And I think the thing that might disadvantage Arlene Violet is the fact that she's not a woman of color. And the second point I'll make is the Democratic leadership is quite diverse in the House of Representatives. It's in the minority side, but it's diverse. And it's been very supportive of candidates who have run, who are of color, and who win. And so if you are in that category, not only will you represent Rhode Island in a diverse way, but the National Democratic Party will pay close attention to you and probably give you more things than if you're not in that category. So I think there's a lot of advantages to playing up that sense of identity for the candidates who are running in CD1. Yeah, you raised a good point. Rhode Island has never sent a person of color to D.C. ever, have they? Not to my understanding. I'd have to go back and make sure, look, in the late 19th century, but I don't believe so, no. The state legislature has become much more diverse, and there are a lot of different voices that are powerful, and we don't have that same dynamic in the congressional delegation, and I think there's room for it, and I I, I think that's one of the reasons why maybe Helena, Helena Bonanno folks did not run in the CD1 as a white woman. Yeah, I think we could have three or four Latina candidates running, and we might have three or four black candidates running, if they all get in, how diverse would this field be? This would be the most diverse field ever running for federal office in Rhode Island. The problem with having a lot of candidates running in the primary is that you win with a very small percentage of the vote. And then how do you connect with all the people who didn't vote for you? You know, when there's a three-person race or a four-person race, you can still connect when you win and make that ground up. But if there are eight or ten people representing all sorts of different corners of the district, that's just a bigger challenge. And I think that's why people like a mayor or Sabina Matos or Sandra Cano, who's been in the state legislature, they already have constituent bases. And I think that makes it somewhat easier not only to possibly win the primary, but to, to be successful next year when they have to defend the seat. Jim, how about House Finance Chairman Marvin Abney? He's a Newport Democrat. Do you see him entering the race? And how strong a candidate would he be? I've heard that he is strongly considering. The other person is Don Grebian, the mayor of Pawtucket. We had heard maybe he was going to announce. And then he's had a few things on his mind in Pawtucket over the last week. And interestingly, Senator Cano works for him. Exactly. For the city of Pawtucket. Exactly. It's Rhode Island, right? In CD1, we've got Pawtucket Mayor Don Grebian. East Providence Mayor Bob DeSilva, and maybe Woonsocket Mayor Lisa Baldelli-Hunt. What advantages would a mayor have in this race? I think if it gets narrowed down to one, you have that, what I call the mayoral mafia, 
that helped Dan McKee, quite frankly. They were behind him. Not that everybody votes with their mayor. There's some people who take issues with their mayor. But I think if you had Grebian or DeSilver, Mayor Baldelli Hunt, that's a built-in coalescing that you would think the mayors would go with them. And if you're paying attention to what your mayor does and they endorse somebody, look, in a, in a race with 130 people, that's going to take, what, maybe 13 or 20,000 votes, every, that vote could put you over the yeah, top. Yeah, what percentage of the vote do you think the winner of this primary, the Democratic primary, will get? The real question is, everybody's talking now, when rubber hits the road, signatures, money, right, and all right. of that shakes out in July, winnowed. how many people do you think are going to be on the ballot? Yeah, I, I mean- Seven, you eight, could, ten, maybe? I, I think you could see 12 people on really? the ballot. You see that many people. But I, I do think that it takes a lot of time and energy, and, and nobody's getting paid for this. And there's a limited Sabina amount of Matos fundraising. Sabina Matos is getting paid. Well, I mean, I meant nobody's getting paid who's not already in a you know a job, either a private job or a public job, and the job they still have to do. Nobody seems to have a fundraising advantage yet. And I think there'll be money that starts to float to people that are perceived to be a front runner. And I think that's going to happen before the summer. So let's say we do have 12 candidates running for this seat. Jim, from the media's perspective, how do you hold the debate with 12? Are we going to have to rent out the Civic Center or the AMP, I guess it is now? It's a logistical nightmare, and it's also just media bandwidth. We had a heck of a time as reporters covering a competitive governor's race and CD2. The logistics of a debate are important, but I also think the day-to-day. The Taubman Center at Brown, which I'm the director of, no longer does the Rhode Island polls. But there are other polling organizations. The Globe does a poll. Sometimes WPRI does a poll. So my guess is the way that they've done it before is they'll take a poll maybe in May or early June or July and the top six best name uh, recognition How are you going to get accurate polling, though? You just you can't do it. The way everyone does it all the time. You ask four, 400, Right, so you're going to have people. somebody who gets 0.5 and somebody who gets 0.8. No, but you set the threshold at a certain number and say the top six, whatever the top six are, the top six are. Let me ask this. Like, if you polled this list of candidates, what do you think their name recognition would be? What do you think they would poll at right now? Well, Grebian would poll pretty high. I think Sabina Mathis would poll high. I think uh, Cano might poll high. Uh, Arlene Violet may poll high. You know, we don't know, but that's now. That's not after four or five months of subsequent campaigning. But I think it's a fair way of of sort of breaking this logjam and narrowing down the options in terms of a debate. And Jim, we've been focused mostly on the Democrats because this is a solidly blue district, but who might run on the Republican side? I'm not sure about that. It's a sacrificial race. If you run, it's a heavy lift. So you're basically doing your party a favor. Jim, Professor Schiller, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Ed. To read more of our reporting on the first congressional district race and to see the most recent list of who's running, Go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. A professor at Salve Regina University is leading a group of students to uncover artifacts from a demolished mansion in Newport. Alexa Gagas has the details. Looking for things to do over Easter weekend or during school spring break? Lauren Daly has a list of fun events over the next week. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Scott Hellman, and Carlos Munoz. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. 
And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.